Well, hey, I got to tell you, I don't, <laughs> I don't know if I'm ready. <laughs> I was just sitting in the pew, just crying. <laughs> Brady is praying, and I'm like, go away, go away, go away, go away. So we got to start, right? So, hey, glad you guys are here. Um, just a special welcome to all of you guys. I want you to hear it uh, from me uh, as well. We're really excited that you guys are here. If you're a college student, uh, coming back for college at the university. It's all kicking off. Uh, we're super excited you guys are here. Find us. We'd love to point you in the right direction and get you guys connected to uh, the right people. So, hey, we are jumping in. This is Labor Day weekend and fall kickoff is next week. Um, it's kind of when we really kind of dive in. And so this morning, we're going to start the book or the gospel of Mark, which is really, we're going to be in the first eight verses, okay? Uh, and that really is an introduction. It's kind of like the start, like this prologue or introduction to the rest of the gospel. And so we're going to lead all the way up into really when Jesus kind of kicks off and starts his ministry. And that's what we're going to start with next week as we launch into fall kickoff, is look right at Jesus. But this morning, uh, we're going to spend some time just kind of prepping our hearts, really, uh, for the series. Um, and it's going to end, honestly, in, in a time of just sober confession, because when we think about the real Jesus, uh, not some fake version of Jesus that it's easy for us to make him out to be, there's a lot of things that we probably need to kind of bring before the Lord. So um, before we dive in, um, just a couple of things. Um, if you guys haven't gotten one of these, um, you can raise your hand and one of our ushers will bring that to you. Um, we do these for every series. Uh, you can see that the title is called Follow Me, the Marks of a Disciple. Clever, right? Mark, Marks, okay? Just, just in case you didn't catch it, you know? Um, and follow me. These are the words of Jesus to the disciples, right? And you can see at the bottom it says part one. Uh, so we're going to be in this for a while because I I think, gosh, in this season, we've been here, Nikki and I have been here for over three years, you know, and from this stage, from this pulpit, we have yet to really teach through the person and the, the ministry, the life of Jesus. And so as we're moving forward in this season, we really feel like putting Jesus uh, and, and the real Jesus, you know, front and center, um, not just uh, at, our, at the front of our church, but really at the front of each of our lives as individuals, right? So this is a resource for you. It's free. There's, there's no charge. Um, we'd love to give that to you. Um, it's really designed to do with people, not just alone, but though you can do it alone. Um, and if you've got one of those phones that can kind of do QR codes, you can go on page five and you'll see uh, one of these right here. And this will actually take you to to a space on our website uh, that's updated weekly, uh, and it has pictures and videos. And so just so we don't have to print like black and white photos, which kind of maybe feel anticlimactic in here, uh, you can go and you can get glimpses of the places of these stories and videos, and you can dig deeper. And so those are great resources for you uh, as well. You can find that at the Hub. You can also just go out to the resource wall, and there's a bunch of books there uh, that are just great supplemental reading uh, as well. So whenever we dive into a new, a new series, you know, it's like, it's like we're starting a beginning, right? It's the beginning of something. And, uh, and really, what we're going to find this morning as we start with this, it's really the beginning of the gospel, right? There's this beginning element to that. Uh, and so what I, what I hope this morning what we're going to do is we're going to kind of, we're going to talk about making room for Jesus, okay? Just, and so just follow, track with me here for a second. When this was many, many years ago, you know, five to seven years ago, my wife and I started uh, the process uh, of adoption. Uh, some of you guys may know that infertility is, is our story. And so as we were you know, thinking about kind of growing the family and as the doctors kind of talked to us and revealed to us 
that, uh, that having our own child was probably not going to happen. And so that obviously involved a ton of hurt um, and brokenness and grieving and a lot of pain and hardship in our story. Um, but, you know, as we came to grips with it, we knew we'd always wanted to adopt. And so for this, like, it just kind of shifted and, like, we realized that, that adoption for us was really kind of God's plan A. And so then the more that that became to really sink in, the more excited we became. And so as you go through this whole process, here's what you have to do, though. You, you fill out everything and then you go, okay, we're ready. And they say, great, wait, <laughs> wait, 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 wait. And then just when you think you can't wait anymore, they say, wait some more. You know, like it just is, it's like this is the process, right? Because you just never know what's going to happen. You keep trusting. But I remember this moment. I was out hanging out with a buddy, and we were in Charlotte, North Carolina at the time. And then I was hanging out with this guy, and I, I get this phone call. And normally I don't answer a phone call from a name that I just don't recognize. Like it's just a number. And I thought, you know what? I really just, just felt this urging to answer it. And so I pick it up and I answer it. And it turns out it's the adoption agency. And it's this gal and she says, hey, Seth, you know, hypothetically, we've got this mom, you know, who might be a fit for you guys, um, but she may not be able to pay for all of the bills. Are you guys okay with that? And I'm like, man, we don't have unlimited money, but we want a family. So yeah, let's do this, you know? And so we get on, so that phone call ends and then, but then what happens is you don't hear anything. And then you don't hear anything, and then you don't hear anything. So you wait, you wait, you wait, you wait, you wait, and you wait some more, and wait some more. And then Memorial Day weekend came around, which is my birthday weekend, and I was sitting outside uh, at this table and uh, reading my Bible in the morning sun, and Nikki came out of the door, and she goes, Seth, we've been selected. And I just like, I mean, like I, like, I was so overwhelmed, I didn't even know what to do. But so I go, from that moment forward, right, it's like you've been waiting for good news, waiting, waiting, waiting. And when that good news finally comes, what do you do? And so like we, we ran to the room that we knew was going to be her future room. And we looked in and we're like, man, that's a lot of junk. I don't know whose that is. Whose that is? I don't care. Here it goes. Throw it out the door. I'm like, oh, pick up this. Oh, I used to be sentimental about, get rid of it, you know? And like, and here's the thought, like I was like, as you're clearing out the room, you're decluttering and decluttering and decluttering because you've been waiting for the good news. And as the good news has finally arrived, what we needed to do is that we needed to create space for a life to enter into our home. We needed to make room for our future daughter, Right? And I think that the same is true uh, for us as we, as we wrestle with this. And part of what Mark is going to describe for us in these opening verses is similar to this. He's like, hey, I want you people to make room for Jesus. I want to give you the real picture, the real portrait of Jesus. Like, this is the real Jesus. Like, and we have these, these pictures in our mind about what Jesus looked like. And, you know, he's wearing this, you know, really pretty sash and this perfectly trimmed beard. I don't even know how that they did that. And he's carrying a lamb and, you know, you know, like, I don't even know. Like, we have these pictures and then we think about all that stuff. And yet, guys, this, this gospel being the first gospel ever written captures Jesus in all of its brevity, but the real picture of Jesus. And I think that that's what we long for in today's world. I think that we long for 
people inside the church and outside the church, whether you're a church person, you're a de-churched person, you're like, I gave up on church. You know, you're watching online, you're like, man, I just don't really think this is the thing. I think that for so many people in today's world, we're longing for a fresh version of Jesus that connects all of the dots in our life. And it's not just I come to church and then I go home. It's like, here's the spiritual and here's the secular. It's like, we want to elevate the theology of work and bring these two together to help us see that the way that we are designed to work in this world is in connection to what God has called us in the church. And it's this beautiful portrait as we're going to see the start of this. And I just, I want you to start with this. I just, I think this is so true. The church is designed to be, and it needs to be, a community of people who are united around a clear vision, like clear, like not opaque, not messy, not fuzzy, but a clear vision of the real person, works, and mission of Jesus in the real life context of the world that they live in. Do you get that? Like, I think that this is something that we long for. It's something we're designed for, and it's something that we need, but I also think that it's something that we ultimately long for because as Jesus is entering into this story, he's like, Seth, I want space in your life, but I want a prominent position. I don't want to be in the closet. I want a prominent position, and I want a permanent position. Like, I want to be front and center, and I want to do life with you as we say, follow me, kind of together. So we're going to jump into the prologue. This is Mark chapter 1, verse, verse 1, okay? This is how John, like, this is John the Baptist who's going to be entering in, but Mark, as he records this, he's basically saying, here's the deal. Like, as we think about the gospel, the beginning of the gospel is it's going to enter into the story. Here's what I want you to know, okay? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of of God, okay? That's such a short, quick, and easy verse, but I think there's a lot in this, honestly. Like, like, what is the beginning of the gospel? Like, isn't God, like, omniscient? Isn't he, like, eternal? So, like, where does the gospel begin? How do you define that? Like, what does this really mean, okay? I think it can mean a couple of things. One is that in the first eight verses, really those first 15 verses of Mark, is that he covers this whole swath of this first kind of really first whole year of Jesus' ministry right here in just a few verses. And so maybe what he's doing is he's saying, hey, this is just the beginning. Jesus is going to start in verse 15. That's where we're really going to launch into this ministry of his. But before that, you've got these things, which is the beginning of the gospel, these interworkings through John the Baptist and some other things that are happening to lay the stage, to set the stage for Jesus to enter into the story. So maybe that's it. He's just saying it's the beginning of the gospel because it's the first couple of verses. But maybe... Maybe it's something that's bigger. Because if we come back to our timeline here as we think through this, right? Like you think about that moment that God creates, this, this cosmic creation. We know God is eternal, which is baffling, you know, and so, you know, we, we just rack our brain thinking about it. But then he creates this timeline, right? Which for us is really still ongoing. But we think about Genesis 1-1. Like this is where God, like he, he creates the universe with a word, right? He speaks it into existence. But the pinnacle of that creation, right, is these two individuals, Adam and Eve. And, and they're really, they exist in this perfect harmony, right? It's like the shalom of God, which means peace or wholeness or completeness is, is in existence, right? And it's this beautiful place. It's the Garden of Eden, right? And everything is working the way that it ought to work. Now, they don't have all knowledge because that's not what perfection is. 
They're just working in an environment that is not broken. They're working in an environment that is designed in its beauty, okay? But then as we know, right, kind of what happens is like there's this little story. We oftentimes refer to it as like the apple, but in the story we don't know what it was. But they eat this fruit of the tree. And in so doing, what it does is that it causes this massive separation, this brokenness. As sin enters into the world, now man is born in a sinful state. And there's nothing that we can do about it, right? And so there's this massive chaos that exists. But here's the good news. Because remember, we're talking about the beginning of the gospel. Gospel means good news. If you become just a few verses later in chapter 3, verse 15, is that God says this. He basically says, hey, for you, Adam, life's going to be hard. I just realized Adam has no arms. There you go. He's like, life is going to be really hard. Like, when you labor on the ground, it's going to be that much more difficult. And for the women, like child labor, that's going to be that much more difficult. And so it's not like it's going to be unbearable, but life is going to be hard. But here's the good news, is that God introduces in what we might call the first gospel. He says, here's the deal. There is a key character in my storyline, yet to be named and yet to be revealed, but that when that person comes, he will restore everything that was broken here. And Satan and the accuser, like, he's still going to be present. And really what it says is that Satan is going to bruise the heel, but basically this, this Messiah figure is going to crush the serpent. It's going to defeat the opponent and defeat death. And so as you then read the Old Testament, really what you're doing is that you're flipping through the pages and you're waiting, you're waiting, and you're waiting. Do you catch that word again? Waiting for that, for that key figure to come. Right? It's like you're flipping through the pages. Okay, Genesis, nope, not there. Uh, Exodus, nope, not there. Uh, Leviticus, nope, 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 nope. Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, nope, nope, nope. And you get to Saul. Maybe you're like, hey, Saul, maybe he's the king. Nope, he's really not it. Okay, guys? Maybe it's David. Real promise. Nope, Bathsheba, big problem. Right? And so what ends up happening is you flip through the pages and you go, nope, 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 nope. That was super redundant, but I think you get my point. You get to... Jesus is when he finally enters into the thing. But before you get to that, just I want you to think through this. This line, this line right here represents thousands of years of waiting. Can you just let that sink in for a moment? Thousands of years of waiting, and you have a hard time waiting for your burrito at Chipotle. I said you, what I really meant was me, but I just didn't want to feel as guilty this, this service, you know? We're waiting, 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 and Jesus finally enters into the storyline. Can, can I just, like, this is the good news, right? Can you imagine better news than this? Because this good news totally reverses everything that was broken here. Is there better news than that? No way. And so if you're a Jewish person in that world, Jesus enters into the story, and you're like, this is what I've been waiting for. It's the Messiah. It's the promised one from Genesis 3.15. He will crush the Satan. He will crush the accuser. Our enemies will be defeated. Huzzah! I don't even know what that means, <laughs> right? That's the thing. You're waiting for it. But here's the deal. When you look at Mark, who's Mark written to? Was, was Mark written to Jews? No, <laughs> it wasn't. Mark was written to 
Romans. It was written to people in Rome. It was written to people in Rome. Do you think that Romans had any clue about the Messiah? No. They don't know anything. Which, by the way, can, like for us in our culture, in our context, like we're raised in the Bible story. For most of us, and if you're not, like that's okay. But when you think about this, like if you're raised in the Bible story, this is all like second nature to you. Can you imagine being a person in Rome and knowing that there is something totally wrong and broken inside of you that you feel guilt and shame over, and yet you cannot articulate the problem or the solution? Can you imagine? So it's not just that the problem doesn't exist, they just don't know how to name it. And so then Mark writes a gospel to the Romans. Who are the Romans familiar with? They're familiar with gods, right? Who do they steal gods from? From the Greeks, right? So they got these gods, this god, this god, this god. They got all sorts of gods. But when Jesus calls himself in the gospels, typically in Matthew, how does he refer to himself? The son of who? Man. How does Mark describe him? The son of God. Because it's like Mark is putting into context of the Roman people, here's all of your gods. Oh, and by the way, here's Jesus, the son of God. And he collectively blows all of the other gods. There's no blowing up of people. Sorry, like that just sounds wrong, right? There's, he, just, he, he is the one who is over all of those people. He's far better, far greater than any other gods collectively can even combine. And this is what he says. This is the beginning of the gospel. Look at this in, at the end of the book in Mark 15. He says, and Jesus uttered a loud cry. This is like we're moving towards the cross, right? The moment in Mark, which by the way, guys, Mark is known probably for more for what it omits than what it, for what it includes, like Mark, like there's no Christmas story, right? There's no holiday, all that stuff. He just blows right past it. He goes right to Jesus' ministry in verse 15 of chapter one, like year one, right? And so you don't have that, but we're moving towards the cross. And it's at the end, it says, and Jesus uttered a loud cry, breathed his last, and the curtain that was in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And then, get this, the centurion, who's the centurion? What is he? Roman, a Roman centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last. He said, truly, this man was the son of God. And so by the end of the book, when Mark is writing to Romans, you see a Roman centurion, their enemy, the guy who crucified Jesus, is the very one who says, these other gods, they got nothing on Jesus. I got nothing. Which, by the way, when you think about um, the Jewish people, who did the Jews want freedom from? The Romans. So the very, this is the very first gospel. Most likely, this is the very first gospel of all of the gospels that was written. And the first gospel that's written is written to who? Their enemy. Can you, like, do you get that? Do you, do you get that? It's like the very people that they want freedom from, Mark's like, hey man, here's the deal. I got something that's even better. I got freedom for you in Jesus Christ, whom you crucified nonetheless. 
right? And so what we find is that at the center of this book is the gospel, right? And we're, there's these people that are longing for good news, but it's not just a good news for some people. It's a good news that are for everybody. And if you're just to pause and just stop and say, do I really believe and have the courage to take the gospel to my enemy? Who's your enemy? I don't know. Maybe you could figure it out. Does the gospel apply? Because that's what Mark is doing. He's writing a gospel to these people. And it's brilliant, right, when we think about this. And this is how it starts. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so then Mark, he begins to prepare. So as the gospel is entering into the story, as this beginning news, which is there's no greater good news as it enters into the history of humanity, no greater good news, how does John the Baptist begin to prepare and pave the way for this good news to enter into the story? Look at verse 2. It says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, he quotes and says this is from Isaiah, but this is interesting because he's actually quoting from a variety of different sources, right? That first one, my messenger before your face, who's that really about? In Exodus. Moses? You got Malachi in the next one who will prepare your way. And then you have Isaiah at the end, this voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So when you, when you think about this, why do you think that he's quoting from all three of these? Where does Exodus fall in the timeline? It falls right after Genesis, doesn't it? Where does Malachi fall? Way over here at the end. Isaiah is somewhere over here. See, I think that what he's doing is that he's taking prophecy and he's linking this waiting timeline. And he's bridging the gap and saying, since this moment, God has been faithful. And he is bringing from this moment to this moment to this moment. And God is preparing. He's preparing to, pay, to pave the way. And what he's going to do is he's going to send this guy named John, right? And so John kind of starts the story, right? He's the one who's preparing the way, right? So there's John. John and his preparation, okay? So it starts with him. But it also tells us that he has this voice, right? It's this voice that's crying out in the wilderness. Do you remember this? Right? Do you remember what happens in the wilderness? The wilderness is this backstory, right? There's this, it's, there's this wandering element is that the people, as they come out of Egypt and they, and they move out into the wilderness, there's this wandering phase that they're going through, this wandering phase. And as a part of that, right, they, they begin to wrestle with really kind of the, the depravity of their situation. It's like they have no food and they have no water. So they're in a desert. Like these are really important things. And so they begin to grumble, I'm like, oh, God, we have no food and we have no water. Can you please help us? Being in Egypt was better than where we're at right now, which, by the way, is true. Was being in Egypt better? Yeah, because they had houses, they had food, they had water, but it wasn't as good as where God was taking them. And that was part of the process, wasn't it? 
See, what happens is that God hears their cries. This is the, this is the voice. Like they have these, these people that are crying out in the wilderness, and God hears the cry. But then after God gives them food and water, he gives them water, and then he gives them what? He gives them manna. And then after a while, what do you hear? Oh, God, all we have is manna. It's the worst. Could you give us something else? Something else other than manna. And it turns into grumbling, this crying in the wilderness. I was listening to this, um, this comedy special this week, and I found this funny. He said, you got to be careful about comparing yourself to people in the Bible because sometimes bad things happen, right? He said, he goes, he goes, he goes, he goes I was talking to a coworker or something like that the other day, and they got to work, and they did this. Ah, I stopped at Starbucks on my way to work, and I got an iced latte, and by the time I got to work, it was all melted. Now I know what Job was feeling like. <laughs> and he's like, oh, no, 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 like don't, don't make that comparison. Don't do that, which by the way, can we just admit in, in humility together that maybe there is some truth to the idea that in our American culture, we've grown a little soft. <laughs> Can we just say that? Like, so whether or not it's, a, it's this melting ice latte, or it's in the middle of desert with no food and water, it, it, either way, it doesn't, right, it doesn't dispel the fact that, that at the core of that, there is this longing for a new beginning. There's a longing for something that is better. There's a longing for the world to be, be remade right. And it's, it's we're waiting for God to show up with good news. And we're waiting, waiting, God, God, bring good news. Would you bring good news? And in the midst of that crying out, so there's all these people who are wandering throughout the wilderness, kind of metaphorically wandering, and it's in the prophecy that says, here's what's going to happen, is that there's going to be a voice that's in the center of that, and it's not going to be a voice that is parallel to these voices. It's not going to be like, hey, that's a good point. Ah, this is the worst. It's going to be, no, it's going to be a voice that calls out to the people who are wandering, and it's in that voice, in that message, what's going to happen is that all of these people who are wandering are going to gravitate to the voice because there's something about it that resonates in their heart. This is what we've been longing for. Do you think there's wandering in today's world? think there's wandering in today's church? Absolutely. I think that there is. And so, but this is John the Baptist's role. He's the one, he's the voice crying out in the wilderness. You're like, okay, Seth, I get it. Like, that's John the Baptist's role. Like, that really doesn't have, like, we can, like, it doesn't really say anything about us. And I would say false. Because you read these next words, and he says, prepare the way of the Lord. Guess what? Here's what that is. That, that, that idea of prepare is in the second person plural. So it's not just John preparing the way. He's the voice who's calling to these people, would you collectively, let's do this together, me and you together, but we need to prepare the way of the Lord. Do you see how those two things work together? Who, whose path do we need to make straight? We need to make Jesus' path straight. And what do we need to make it? We need to make it straight. So when you come down here and you look at this word, straight, straight, 
This is a really important word, um, and I'll tell you in a second, but, but just notice this, notice this, is that this word is used more frequently, more times in the Gospel of Mark than the rest of the New Testament combined. This is a very important word, okay? And it's oftentimes translated into the word, at least in the ESV, it's immediately. It's just straight or immediately, okay? And I'll tell you why, because here's the, here's the word. It's the word uthus. Nope, that's wrong. Don't, nope, that's also wrong. You know what? It's Greek. You don't know. Okay, okay. We'll just move on. Uthus. Uthus is the adjective, okay? And, and the adject, as an adjective, it means straight. Now, here's why that's significant. Because it, it implies that there's something that is bent or broken that needs to be made straight. And in other words, it's, it's the idea of moving towards what is right, moving towards what is proper. That's the idea, Okay, and so here, right, when he says make paths, make the paths straight, that's what he's doing. He's talking about this. It needs, there's something that is bent that needs to be made straight, which by the way, when you think about Jesus' ministry, he came to take something that's broken, that's bent way out of shape, and he came to make it whole and complete, didn't he? And so what he says to the people, he says, make their paths straight. That's the adjective. But there's another word that shows up with it. And it's the word utheos. Utheos is the same word, but in adverb form. This is what it means. It means straight away. You see, utheos has this idea of time and direction. So let's just, just think a second for about urgency. We're, we're talking about urgency. Something happens and you need to respond, okay? So in life, let's just say that you're a parent, you're a babysitter, somebody who's been in placed in charge of a young child who doesn't know what they're doing. And that young child is, is in the driveway and the ball goes out into the street and they begin to run after that ball and you see a car coming along the left side. What do you do? Is there urgency in the moment? Absolutely, right? You go straight from there, right away, that's the timepiece, and right into that direction, this moment of interception to stop all the while screaming, stop, 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 right? It's not like if you're that person and you see them running and you see the car coming, you're like, yeah, I got about 10 seconds, I can finish my text. You know, no, there's a timing, and it's not like you go, okay, I need to do it now, but then you run around the house three times to go get the kid. It's right now, right to that. And so what Mark is doing at the very beginning of this, he's talking about the urgency of the kingdom. He says, here's the deal. There's a God type of action that's going to happen repeatedly throughout this gospel. God's going to do something, and then man needs to respond. God's action, man's response. You could ask the question like this, is what is God doing right now and how do I need to respond? And remember that he's setting up the book. He's setting up the precedent as you track and you can take a highlighter when you go home and you can highlight the word immediately, 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 immediately. You'll see it over and over and over and what you're gonna get is the sense of urgency. Mark is said, setting the precedent that when God, that when God is doing something, we need to respond. Which makes sense when you think about discipleship because what, what does he say to his disciples? Follow me. He doesn't say, hey, uh, run around the house three times and then meet me when you're ready. 
You know, like there's this, this time and direction, right, that we would gravitate to Jesus. And that's why I think about this and go, guys, we, in order, in order for us to even get to that point, we need to make room for Jesus. We need to make room for Jesus. You know, for us in our story, you know, we've, we have one kid and, and we're now in the, in the stage of kind of finishing getting ready for a second adoption, which is exciting for us. And, uh, um, you know, all that stuff that you got rid of, you know, like your house just fills up with that, that new person's things, <laughs> you know. Um, and so this morning I, I opened up my garage door and went out and I stepped on her scooter, <laughs> you know, just, just about, just, you know, just about did it. Um, but when you have this new kid coming into your home, like we've been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting over and over and we'll wait and we'll wait. And when that good news comes again, guess what we're going to do? We're going to go to the next room and we're going to say, guess what? I don't know whose this is, but it's gone. And I don't know whose this is, but it's gone. And, you know, and we just want to clear the room and declutter it. We want to get stuff out, the things that aren't important, so that we can make space again for a life to enter into the home. And guys, let me just ask you this. We do this in, in, in life for the things that we value. Why don't we do it for Jesus? Why don't we declutter why is it that when we hear that God is doing something, that we have pause and we stop and we go, man, does that really apply to me? Is that really something we're supposed to do? I think that there's things in our life, and this is where I think that this actually, like we move from motivation almost to like the idea of sobering because there are things in our life that is stopping us. Here's the proclamation Look at verse 4. It says, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. You see, as John the Baptist is out there, right, all of these people, all these people begin to come to John the Baptist. And you're like, why? Why this surge? Like, why is it? Like, now John placed himself at the Jordan River, which is right where they would have come across and to come into the promised land. So he strategically places himself in a place that God has been known to act, and he sets camp there, and he begins to preach this message, and all these people begin to come. And you're like, why? Like, what, what was it about this? Like, they didn't know Jesus was coming, so why were they coming to, to John the Baptist? And the answer is like, we don't know. As best as we can presume, right, there's something that's going on collectively in the hearts of people as they are creating an expectation or a hope or a desire or this longing for a new beginning. They're longing for something more. Like, I've been following all the laws. I've been following the Pentateuch. I've, I've done all of those things, and yet inside of me, I know that there's just something that I'm missing. What? is that. And so there's something that's drawing all these people to John. And by the way, like, is there wandering today? Again, yeah, I think so. Like, you look at the world, people who don't know Jesus, it doesn't matter if they've got a beat-up Chevy or a Rolls Royce, and it doesn't matter how they present themselves, because underneath that, there's a full acknowledgement that there's something broken inside of them that they cannot articulate, and there's a lack of purpose. I think that there's also, it's also true, I think there's wandering even inside of the church. Like, like even in the Christian life, there can be this lack of Jesus. 
My wife sent me this text the other day, uh, and it had a, a pin drop location, and I, I was like, why in the world is she sending me this? And I pull it up, and it comes with this little article, and it says, good news. I don't think that's what it actually says. I'm just attaching it to the story. Good news. There will be a Chipotle coming to the parking lot near Cashwise in Moorhead. And I was like, yes! Finally! Chipotle's like my favorite. It's so good. It's going to be right next to me. Oh, man, this is such good news. About an hour later, I was like, man, is that really what I'm cheering for? Like, is this really that significant in my life? Like, there's so many better things in life that Jesus is doing other than bringing a burrito to my doorstep. People, even though it has great salsa and great meat, so good. <laughs> guys, I said this several weeks ago. I don't know if you guys remember this or caught this. There's an article that was released, and, and it said that over the past 25 years, roughly 40 million people have left the church. Do you think that there's wandering inside of the church? Do you think there's people going, gosh, like this thing about Jesus and church, this isn't really working for me. There's a disconnect. What is it? As the research came out, as they began to pile up this research, here's the conclusion that they reached. It's not, that because, it's not because the church was asking too much, which you would think it would. It's because the church was asking too little. You see, Jesus wasn't big enough. Jesus wasn't whole enough. He didn't consume everything throughout their week, which is why there's this spiritual and secular divide that we need to bring together and we need to connect Monday to Saturday to our Sundays and realize that God has designed our faith community to operate differently in the world that we live in. This is why I would come back to this idea that the church needs to be, it's designed to be and needs to be a community of people who are united around a clear vision of the real person of Jesus, not a fake version, none of that stuff, but a real vision of, of Jesus. Like, that's so important for the church. Like, this is an opportunity as we jump into Mark for us, because I think that for us, we're longing for a fresh version of Jesus who actually asks more of us rather than less. Like, think about that. That's the creator of the universe, and you go, like, Jesus shows up, and he's like, yeah, actually, you're doing fine. Don't worry about it. He's like, no, I got a plan, and you're a part of it. Let's do this together. So I think about this, and as we wrap this up, you know, like, it, how, how all this kind of finishes. When you come back to this map, and you know, I left this up because last week you might remember, you know, that we looked at Paul and his missionary journeys and how all that went out. Um, you know, so the gospel is really designed. It went all the way over here and then eventually goes all the way over to Rome. But it starts back over here, doesn't it? And there's the Sea of Galilee, a little river, and there's the Dead Sea. And so it's in this space that we come back to in Mark, knowing that the gospel would one day go here, there, and everywhere. But here's this moment in the history as Jesus is entering into the story, you have all of these people from Jerusalem and Judea all over the place coming to John the Baptist. Boom, 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 boom. And here they gather. And what are they doing? They're confessing their sins. You see, I think there's something holy about confessing our sins, and I think it's, it's, it makes us uncomfortable. 
But there is something to say about confession. Because when you and I come together and when we confess, when we expose the deepest, darkest hurts and brokenness in our lives, we are opening ourselves up to be fully known and to be fully loved. And that can happen. And it does happen with God. It happens right now. But even I think it's designed for in our community as we open up to each other that we can also be fully known and fully loved even in the midst of our community, right? That there's something about confession that draws us to the grace and to the mercy and to the unconditional love of Jesus. And there's beauty in the gospel. But the gospel is also more than that because he says that they're confessing their sins. So there's something more than just being fully known and fully loved. There's also something about the gospel saying, I want you to be fully committed. Fully committed, not to a fake Jesus, but to the real Jesus, as Mark captures him. And I think that's what we long for in today's world. You and I, we just need to make room for Jesus. So let's make room. Let's allow Jesus to enter into the story in a new and fresh way as we look at the gospel of Mark. As we finish this, I just want to give you these three things. You ask yourself this question, like, what is God doing? How do I need to respond? And what's holding me back that I need to confess? I want you to last, and then we'll, we'll do communion, but I want you to see the picture of John the Baptist. Because John wasn't anything fancy. In fact, he was the embodiment of humility. And here's what he says. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You see, when it comes to confession and when it comes to Jesus, there is something very holy and righteous about saying, there's Jesus' feet. It's the grossest part on his body walking through the desert, and yet I am unworthy to even touch it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we finish this morning, as we're about to take communion, Lord, I pray that you would be stirring in our hearts. Would you be speaking to us? Lord, I don't know what's going on in the lives of people here. For some people in this room, like we need to come to communion and we just need to come in a way where we say, Jesus, here is all of my brokenness. In my story right now, what I need is unconditional love and grace and mercy. And we can find that in you right here, right now in today's world. But yet we also might come to you or others of us might come and say, Jesus, here's the deal. I got a lot of stuff that's been holding me back from you. A lot of things that I need to confess. Or would you pull those things into our hearts? Would you meet us right where we're at this morning and give us exactly what we need? Because you are both of those for those who need it. Lord, we love you. In our name we pray. Amen.